Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we are looking at the term of globalization, but not in terms of what the term is, what it can mean in terms of your overall wealth strategy. Maybe you're someone that has a, a superannuation that's an industry fund, you're exposed to this just as much as the next person. So make sure you're informed rather than holding opinion, and we'll inform you how to do that right now. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and in person together, my co-host, Mitchell Lorenzo. I can see you must have finally got your lockdown haircut done, AB. <laughs> Great to see you, my friend. And uh, in the essence of today's topic, let's jump straight into it. It's a meaty one at that, and that is the topic of globalization. Very topical right now, and, and, and a huge one. Long word, I reckon globalization if you were playing lockdown Scrabble, uh, we'll probably get you a few points too. I can't even spell it. I'm a trader. I'm good at math, certainly not spelling. Uh-huh. Well, we'll leave it at that in that case. So it's a long <laughs> word. Now, globalization, look, it's a, it's a massive thing. And I guess you know, a good place to start is to introduce what exactly does it mean. And globalization, though, I guess, is the fact that the world economy is an enormous jigsaw puzzle and all companies and all subset national economies, if you will, um, a very, very small part of that, and they're so interconnected and reliant on effects that are happening on the other side of the world. And I guess that wasn't always the case, right? If we dial this back, say, 50, 100 years, what happened domestically stayed domestically, not really the case anymore, right? Well, that's right. I mean, if we take Australia in a relatively short history, um, you know, we were part of the British Commonwealth, which we're still part of the Commonwealth, but from a trading partner perspective, you know, Britain was really the epicenter uh, of the Australian economy. So we had wool, in Australia, and that was to the extent of it, it, uh, and then other factors affecting the UK, whether the UK's got involved in the conflict and, uh, and Australians uh, have rushed to the defense of Queen and, uh, and Commonwealth, that was how it was, it was a very narrow channel. Um, you know, we didn't really care too much about what was going on elsewhere, and neither did anybody else, but the world these days is so different, um, you know, not just in terms of awareness of what's going on, media, interconnectivity, and that's what we'll dive into. So it is a different place to what it was 50 or 100 years ago. And I'm guessing that's the rise of technology, really, that, that that's heightening that. Yeah. But let's talk about how it might affect markets, AB, because yeah. that's really our bread and butter. Yeah. Three aspects we want to cover off today, contagion, supply chain, and risk on, risk off. Mm. Let's start with contagion. Well, contagion's a big one, and I guess, you know, where do you start with that? Contagion is an, uh, an event that happens here, and, and the long tentacles, if you will, of that event um, send repercussions and tidal waves everywhere. I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you know, <laughs> a good example of that, if we go back to the global financial crisis, would have been the issues at Lehman Brothers. Uh, so for those of you that don't recall, uh, 2008, Lehman Brothers American Investment Bank um, fell over, uh, was unable to meet its liabilities and uh, effectively collapsed, too big to fail, not quite. Uh, and that sparked what was then known as the global financial crisis. You know, there's a knock-on effect with Bear Stearns, you know, Merrill Lynch were acquired by Bank of America and bang, the whole thing uh, fell apart. Uh, and so that's an example of something that was happening on Wall Street based on largely the US economy uh, and affected the world. So there's a very, very clean example of contagion. And just to look at that in a little bit more detail, does it really depend on the size of the economy as to what kind of, of effect it might have? The US economy is a, what, the, the biggest, the largest economy in the world. Mm. Take China as an example. We're looking more recently at the Evergrande crisis, the yeah. second largest economy in the world. Mm versus, let's say, the um, you know, Zimbabwe economy, not as large, is the effect as great? Mm. No, of course not. I mean, the, the effects in the major economies with the major players are definitely going to have you know, far more reaching consequences. You know, there's a sidebar. I remember Lehman's were a counterparty, some of my trading activities in the, in the late 90s in the UK, and we actually had, uh, within my institution, an embargo on having them as a counterparty. So they almost went over before. They've played it close to the wire in the past. So there's form there sure. uh, when all that fell over. So yeah, you talk about Ever- 
Evergrande and, and, and where that sits within the Chinese uh, economy. Um, you know, it, it's, it's well documented in the media. Look, it's, it's the second largest developer in China. And you think, well, okay, you know, if a Chinese developer falls over, what impact does that have, for example, on my industry super here in Australia? And the answer is actually quite profound. Um, you know, here's a company that's settled with debt, I think $430 billion of debt uh, at last count, which is um, about, uh, which is actually a bit less than Lehman. Lehman was about $600 billion, uh, just to put that into context. It's a lot of money, regardless. It's, it's, it's a lot of money because it's other people's money. And, sure. and, and they're having trouble paying the coupon, the, the monthly, quarterly, annually um, uh, uh, coupon on the bonds that they've got. And we've talked about this in the past of ghost companies. You know, if you've got companies that are really struggling just to meet the interest payments on the money they've borrowed, how the heck are they going to pay off the principal? And the answer is, it's, it's not. They can't, right? Yeah. So you've got a situation there where, you know, this company could implode and, and, and more than likely will. The question is, how is that going to be allowed to happen? And how's the Chinese government going to deal with it? Um, this is new ground for China uh, as not only an economic powerhouse, which it is, but it's also a very, very public flaying, if you will, of one of the, the, the success poster boys, if you will, of the resurgent and, and, and emerging Chinese capitalism. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of egg on people's faces here, and there'll be people that, you know, they're going to probably be hung out to dry, so to speak, on this too. Uh, and it's a big test of how the Chinese government choose to handle it. Is it going to be a controlled implosion where it perhaps gets nationalized and, and, and it just sort of sinks into the ground and disappears and that's the end of it? Or is it going to be literally cutting the umbilical cord and you're on your own? Uh, and that's something that markets haven't really come to terms with yet because obviously there's that shield of, of privacy in China and, and a very secretive culture as to and it's also the first time that something like this has really um, come along there um, but what happens if or, or, or when it fails uh, and the answer is far-reaching because it's not simply an apartment builder um, you know if you look at the Chinese uh, property market there are over 90 million empty dwellings in China at the moment that have been bought purely from an investment perspective because the market's been running hot and hard and you don't need a tenant to pay the rent when your property is jumping 30, 40, 50% a year. Sure. You know, you're making a gain out of that. So there's an enormous oversupply, uh, and there's also a big structural imbalance there too, insofar as um, a lot of demand in some of the more regional cities. Uh, and let's face it, you know, most people could probably name maybe half a dozen Chinese cities, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of major cities, you know, that are bigger than, you know, Sydney or Melbourne, whatever it might be, that we wouldn't have even heard of. Uh, and, and those regional cities, if you can have, have such a thing, uh, the markets there haven't been strong because people have been moving towards you know, Shenzhen, Beijing, uh, Guangdong, all these different, uh, you know, Shanghai, um, the bigger cities that we're all familiar with. So there's strong demand in those places, but not in others. Yet Evergrande has been building apartments everywhere. Hence, there's a lot of empty stuff uh, in, in areas that, that are no good. Now, what does it mean if it falls over? Well, you know, one of the biggest um, elements that goes into construction is steel. Uh, and Evergrande is one of the largest steel consumers in China and therefore in the world. And so the knock-on effect, the contagion, if we get back to topic, is that if the company falls over, uh, there's going to be less demand for steel, which means there's less demand for iron ore, which puts pressure on iron ore commodity prices, which then has a knock-on effect, of course, of hitting the share price of companies like BHP, Fortescue and Rio. That's a great analysis. And you can see how the next step affects the next step. And for the benefit of our listeners, Evergrande is responsible for 2% of China's GDP. So this is big stuff that we're talking Absolutely, about yeah. here. Um, I actually, funnily enough, read an article on the potential effect on 
on, on iron ore prices, and they're currently, what, 110 US a mm. tonne, something like that. Yeah. If Evergrande falls over, they could come down to $70 a tonne, mm. which wouldn't be great for stocks like Fortescue. Well, that's right, and they go, okay, well, what is it? mean to Joe Bagadona as well. Think about your super fund. Well, it's going to be holding BHP, it's going to be holding Fortescue, it's going to be holding Rio, and the share price of those companies will be negatively impacted by that. So that's the immediate impact of a contagion in that way. Uh, the longer term ramifications, of course, are that if uh, monies are owed to a counterparty, and let's say a bank has loaned uh, or through a bond issue, uh, owns bonds, corporate paper in that company, and the company goes into administration, that's it, the debt's not getting repaid, so now you've got a, a bad loan to write off, which effectively is a debt that you've got to carry on your balance sheet, which affects uh, your P&L, your bad loan provisioning, uh, the liquidity margins that you have in a bank, and ultimately overall the share price. So you've got another example uh, uh, of where a particular stock could be impacted by a, a company that up until probably a few weeks ago, most people have probably never heard of. Um, that's gone sour. How can a developer in China affect your pension, your super? Very, very simply. And, and for anyone thinking this is this is pretty high level stuff, it is, and you're, you're an economist, so fundamental analysis is your strong suit. Mm. We can teach everyone how to do that. We could probably cover that off at the end, AB. Mm. Let's now have a look at the other side of the coin in terms of the commodity space, mm. and let's take oil mm. as an example. I mean, there's supply chain disruptions having an effect globally on oil prices. What's your take at the moment? Some of the, the, the big issues uh, in terms of supply chain across the board aren't just in the, 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 the underlying commodities, the energy prices, and we're certainly seeing rising energy prices uh, globally. There's a shortage. Uh, a part of that is due to the transportation, uh, which is the, the broader issue here. So here's an example of maybe of contagion within the transport sector starting to have a knock-on effect on both commodity prices and, and really quality of life. So if you, uh, what we've seen with COVID is, you know, some ports have been closed and there's a backlog of traffic. You know, we had the Suez Canal, um, you know, parking incident uh, <laughs> uh, a few months ago. Now it seems like a distant memory with the amount of news flow we've had this year. And, um, and so, you know, the, that, that stretching out of getting stuff from A to B means that stuff is not at B at the moment, it's on its way from A. And if you look at the UK, for example, where you've got lineups of people uh, at the petrol bars, it's kind of ironic given you've got North Sea oil sitting 30 kilometers off the coast of the UK. Uh, but nonetheless, because of the production and the globalization cycles of, uh, of raw materials, there's a shortage of petrol in the UK. Um, if you look in Germany and, and in Europe, uh, quite different to, uh, to to Australia. The main uh, use for, uh, for for heating is is natural gas, of which a lot of it comes from Russia. Um, and so, you know, the, again, yeah, energy prices have been rising on the back of that higher carbon price due to transport. It's kind of ironic because natural gas is piped; it's not shipped around. But nonetheless, um, you know, if you've got the opportunity to charge more for your commodity, why wouldn't you? Our miners have been doing it, supply and demand. That's what's happened. Um, in the U.S., you know, you get adverse weather. You know, you get a cyclone or a typhoon um, or a hurricane, to use the American term, in the Gulf of Mexico. It shuts down oil production facilities for a period of time. It may shut down a couple of production platforms. The knock-on effect is that move up in price because supply has been crimped. And the interesting thing with energy, Mitch, is that demand is actually fairly static. You know, if, if, if energy prices have moved up, you don't go, oh, I'm not going to drive my car today. People use their car pretty much the same amount of time until it gets to a crunch point price-wise. 
So you know, you've then got that constraint on supply, ratchets price up even higher. Um, you know, we're seeing thermal coal prices uh, jump through the roof at the moment at the highest level since 2008 um, for the simple reason that China doesn't have a stockpile. It's coming into winter in the Northern Hemisphere. They use thermal coal for generating electricity. They've got power cuts, which, you know, if people are freezing cold and not happy, uh, you get a level of political dissent that's not good. So the Chinese government's got something to do there. So this is something that's all around the world just based on, you know, um, you know a really narrow channel, which is energy prices. Wow, great analysis. Mm. And, and just to cap that off, we've seen stocks here on the Aussie market, which probably a lot of our listeners are familiar mm. with, like Woodside, Petroleum, yep. Origin Energy, Santos, rally very, very hard. They're also three stocks we've got trades on running at the moment. Nice plug, well done, great trading. <laughs> also on that supply side, I mean, we've talked about the effect of energy uh, specifically, uh, but one of the vulnerabilities, if you will, for companies today, uh, and, and we'll dive maybe not too deep, but a little bit into this, is that, um, Components to manufacture something come from all over the world. And if we look at the global tensions at the moment, like Taiwan is one of the world's largest uh, DRAM manufacturers, DRAM being what goes into your computer for your memory, et cetera, et cetera, processing. Um, and you know, you had 78 Chinese warplanes flew into Taiwan's airspace over the weekend. Bit of, um, yeah, there's a lot of political um, saber rattling going on in that part of the world at the moment. And so DRAM prices move around and supply chains are affected by that, which means you know, the components that need to turn up at the Apple factory in order to make your new MacBook Pro aren't here today, they might be two or three weeks late, in which case demand starts to pant up, there's a lack of supply, disrupts the cash flow within the business, it's a simple example. Cars are another one because you think about, you know, there's thousands of components in a car, the glass comes from here, the steel from there, um, the rubber from here, the electrics from there, the copper from there, you know, the, the computers that drive our cars these days um, and, and manage everything in-house come from somewhere else. So, you know, it, it only makes, t takes one of those things to fall over and all of a sudden you've got a massive, massive issue. And, and, and why are we experiencing these problems right now? It's not because of the internet. Um, the reason we're experiencing these problems right now is because the world has gone through a series of economic developments. And this is Economics 101. You know, you start off with an agricultural-based economy. We talked about Australia at the top of this where wool was our primary export. Sure. And hard to believe that now when you look at the you know, billions of dollars of iron ore that goes out the door. So you move from being in uh, an agricultural uh, and this is the typical cycle, by the way. You go from uh, being in an agricultural-based economy into an industrialized economy that makes stuff. Uh, very, you know, polluting countries, uh, a polluting economy that, you know, is refining stuff and turning it into things. And you think about the UK, you have the Industrial Revolution. You've gone from a, an agricultural country into a country that manufactures stuff, and then your wage costs start to increase uh, as you become more developed and you become more wealthy as a country. So all of a sudden, it's not cost competitive to make something here when there's another country somewhere else in the world that's maybe been a bit slower moving out of its agricultural phase and is now getting into its industrial phase. Yeah, the Industrial Revolution in the UK is a couple hundred years ago, yet you've got countries in Africa uh, or in the Middle East that are literally just moving into that space now. So labour costs are much lower, they take up the manufacturing and, uh, and, and the slinky spring moves along. So where do you go from industrial? Well, that's where you might go into technology and innovation and then the next thing. But what we're seeing is a real shift in the world now where a lot of those middle steps, that generational um, you know, industrial revolution is being missed. We're just going from, okay, we've gone from agricultural, uh, let's get straight over here into IP sure. and technology. And so, you know, th that's elongating the supply chain for a lot of companies because there are 
specific countries around the world that manufacture components. You're not going to make them at home anymore. You're going to have to pay you know, a production line job uh, in the US, for example. If you look at, you know, um, in Detroit, um, before the GFC, it was like $97 an hour to have somebody working on a car production line. Well, you can farm that out to Mexico, as a lot of companies did, for $22 an hour. Makes sense, they right? They brought it back to Greensboro. BMW bought, bought it back to Greensboro, uh, Alabama, uh, where you have 25 bucks an hour, cheap labor. Interesting. A lot of pieces to the puzzle once again, AB, and, and something we can teach our clients on. I've gone a bit, got a bit excited and gone a bit deep there, but it's interesting to know what that pathway looks like for countries, and then it explains, well, why don't we make that here? Well, it's just too expensive to do it. Sure. It makes total sense, and it really is relevant for any investor looking to play the stock market, even, even the property market at mm -hmm. that as well, because all of these factors, as you say, whether it be supply chain or the contagion, have such a massive effect. Hmm. Let's chat about the third component of the middle of this broadcast, and that is the, the whole notion of risk on, risk off. So just hmm. for the benefit of our listeners, what, what do you actually mean by that? Okay, so there are times, think about the accelerator and brake in your car. Oh, I love this, I um, love this analogy. All right, so, you know, if it's, if it's, things are getting more risky, you know, it's snowing, don't have that much in Queensland. <laughs> uh, it's foggy, don't have that much either. It's a beautiful sunny day out there. We did have hail last yeah. week. I drove through the hail. There we go. I hope you didn't dent that new Mercedes. If you I didn't. It was good. <laughs> Paint job's good. I had thirsty moored safely in the garage <laughs> when that happened. Um, you know, rain, whatever. When there's inclement weather like that, that's what you might describe as being more risky if you're driving a vehicle. Uh, so you're going to tap the brake. You're not going to go as fast as you should. Uh, contrary to that is when all things are singing and dancing, you're going to hit the gas and there's your accelerator brake analogy. So risk on, risk off. So when things are more risky, you, you want to peg things back a little bit, turn it down a notch. And we're just about to launch a, a great new service, which is our volatility screener, for example, or a screener, which is designed very specifically, not just in terms of the measure of volatility and tell you whether you should be an options buyer or seller, but also when to de-risk your portfolio. It's a pretty damn good early warning system for that too, I might add. Great development work from the team. So in a case where you've got risk on, things are getting uh, 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 things are getting a little bit more risky, and you're hitting the brake and slowing things down. Having exposure to companies that really are correlated to that extended, um, you know, supply line, for example, if that's where the risk is coming from, you know, Suez Canal is blocked. Anything that's got a long supply chain, it's going to be a real problem for a period of time for that business. You move your focus to companies that are going to be less affected by that. So, for example, um, you know, if we look at Woolworths uh, or Coles, they're both grocers, and Woolworths most definitely is a grocer. Now it's flipped off Endeavor, it's Dan Murphy's business, so it's, it's pure grocery play in the middle there. That is a very, very defensive business. And if commodity prices and food prices move up, it will pass those costs on to its consumer because you have to buy food. Even if a packet of spaghetti is 50 cents more expensive, you're still going to pay for it because sure. there's not an alternative. And as such, they're relatively insulated, if you will, from supply chain constraints in terms of the profit margin in their business. So in times of difficulty, they're quite a safe place to kind of go and play. So there's your defensive type strategy uh, into those kind of companies on a risk-on scenario. And, and I guess as we kind of navigate through these waters, and we've just come out of September, which is typically a volatile mm. month for yep. stocks, and that certainly came to fruition, <laughs> um, it, it can be a challenging and arduous task to park your money in a place with any kind of real confidence. Is that why we start to look to businesses in the grocer space? So utilities companies, grocers, healthcare stocks are much yep. the same, right? They're typically your defensive places to go to. Then on the flip side, when it's risk on, and we've talked about commodities pushing harder right now, you can't just have a defensive insulated portfolio because you're not going to get any alpha from that. And alpha is what we mean by outperformance. Sure. Okay, to use the term. So to get alpha, you've got to have some 
exposure to where there are going to be some decent opportunities. Nice and defensive, you're going to get up tomorrow and Coles and Woolies, their share price isn't going to be down 30%. Highly unlikely. Right? Whereas in the iron ore space, uh, that's something you may well see, Not maybe not 30%, but a 5% move can be quite normal in these times of volatile conditions. So you know, y- y- your little box over here, your sleep at night box with your coals, your woolies, your healthcare, uh, and, and so on in there, the defensive type plays. Uh, infrastructure, that's okay, but your, your upside isn't gonna come from that. So your money's gonna be reasonably safe over here, relatively speaking, but to get the upside, you have gotta take a step out of your comfort zone, and that's where your higher conviction risk on trades, if we're looking at energy prices moving up, as you've quite rightly identified with Santos Woodside and, uh, and Oil Search, they're the plays you have to have if you wanna get alpha, which is that outperformance. You've just gotta measure when to do it. Which then poses the question of asset allocation, which can be a very, very challenging task. Mm. How much of your portfolio do you park there and here and there in defense, ETFs, all that kind of thing. Um, I guess, uh, as in, it's a very personal question though, AB, but how are you uh, placing your portfolio mm. right now? Well, I think we've gone um, from an environment where people are all in and some. And what I mean by that is there's been a lot of cash floating around with interest rates being relatively low. And markets have been performing very, very strongly. And so people have been all in. They haven't been, they'll just hold a bit of cash. But if, if you're an investor, you've been all in. And it's been the right play because you've made a lot of money doing sure. that. People have been all in and some, where they've been using a level of gearing as well, uh, borrowed money in order to achieve a, a bigger level of return, whether that be on property, whether it be on stocks. I think we're in a situation now, and one of the things I follow is, is, is the cash component. There's, there's a particular portfolio that's run by uh, somebody I won't share um, <laughs> that I do keep an eye on. Uh, and I look at the cash component in that, and it's been increasing in its cash component probably over the last maybe two or three weeks. So people have gone from being all in and some to not being and some, maybe all in, but they've just reduced that exposure a little bit during these times. And I think that's actually quite a good barometer when you look at institutional money being managed in that way. In the, and I'd appreciate our listeners aren't, haven't necessarily got access to that kind of information. That's what we provide in a more digestible format. Um, but you know, I think having a fairly defensive uh, position, which is pretty much how I've been over the last sort of month and a half. Yeah, I've had stuff going on in my life personally. My wife and I have just had another baby as well. So that seems to be sort of every time we do a podcast, we're having another baby. <laughs> Five, that's it. Off to the plumber, we're going to be sorted out. But um, you know, the, the, the reality is, because I've had other things on my plate as well, I've, I've, I've seen risk on. And so I'm not all in and some, I've actually dialed that back down to be actually you know, holding a bit more cash than I've probably held for, for, for quite some time. That doesn't mean to say I'm buying cans of tuna and running for the hills. I think it's been a strategic asset allocation decision ready to get back into this market where the opportunity presents itself, which is actually what I'm doing. And it's a really good example of how understanding fundamental analysis from a broader economics perspective can then help you shape your, your investment decisions. Mm. And I'm assuming out there there would be a lot of investors listening to, listening into this broadcast, AB, who maybe share the same belief, maybe a little different, but in any case, it's always a personal decision based on your view. Mm. As we come to the very end of this broadcast, one last final question. There's a lot going on in the world right now. We're seeing the US debt ceiling get up there, Evergrande, potentially risk on supply chain disruptions everywhere. How do you trade this? Or how do you at least make a decision on how to trade this? Look, you, you, you can't have a meat and potatoes trading strategy when you're looking at the smorgasbord of, of scenarios that you're talking about. You could add in you know, geopolitical tensions in the South China Sea with Taiwan and whatnot, just to add a further mix. And, and even domestically, <laughs> uh, we can't even get our borders worked out here. You know? So there's, there's all this stuff going on and it does make it quite challenging. 
I've increasingly, um, over the last sort of 18 months, two years, been moving towards um, a satellite uh, solar system type uh, portfolio, which we've talked of plenty of times, sure. where you've got one or two substantial asset allocation decisions, which are your core holdings, and then do some options work around those, uh, generate some cash flow from it, protect them. And then smaller, high conviction positions around that. And I think this is the type of market that very much is like that. And you know, for anyone that's listened to this, it's new. You know, we've got an ETF program. We've just, we're just redoing it at the moment. It's quite topical that we're talking about this. Um, and, and that ETF portfolio, um, there are a couple of specific core holdings uh, that give you the ability to have a, a quid each way. Um, and I won't go into them right now. That's not the purpose of today. But that's something that's uh, just about to be rolled out to our clients. And, 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 and positions like that form a very, very good basis because you've got something that's effectively asymmetric. You've got some upside in the market if it's a bull market, uh, but it's got the ability to be short in a, in a, in a shorter market too, uh, in a more bearish market. And again, with options wrapped around it, it's a great value-add strategy. That's a great kind of core position to hold. Equally, if you're still bullish technology and there's no reason not to be, you know, let's face it, if you look at the NASDAQ, we just saw Tesla come out with all-time high car sale figures and you know, they're well on track uh, for what they budgeted for this year. You have 50% year-on-year growth, which is staggering, you wonder that that supply chain stretch might start to bite into deliverability, and that's something to keep an eye on with that stock. But the NASDAQ's still trucking along really well, so maybe um, rather than try and pin the tail on the donkey and buy a stock, you might buy you know, a, a NASDAQ or a technology-based ETF, uh, whether that's geared or ungeared is a matter of your risk appetite, but given the fact that it's kind of risk on at the moment, I probably wouldn't be gearing up. AB, great advice, plenty of pieces to the puzzle here and if any of our listeners are certainly unsure, reach out to our team because fundamental analysis and sort of that broad economic overview is something we specialise in, but in any case, great to get your insight. Thanks very much. Anytime, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating so that we can share more of this information with people and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.